0: So today we're going to learn the Sicha that is the theme of today's Parsha, double Parsha. This week we're going to be reading Parsha Chukas and Balak. The theme of these two Parsha's we're soon going to learn in greater depth. We're going to see the significance of what the theme of each Parsha is. And the connection to the 12th and the 13th of Tammuz. This month is we're now in Tammuz. The 12th day is the day that the previous Rebbe in 1927 got the news that he's going to be freed completely out of the Soviet uh, prisons and exile. And because it was a day of holiday, they couldn't stamp the paper's finals till the 13th day is when he actually leaves. So the 12th and 13th Thomas, Just like the year when the Sicha was said, the 12th of Thomas was on Shabbos. Also, when the Parshas of Chukas and Balak were together, uh, like it's this year, the 12th of Thomas is on Shabbos, and the 13th will be on Sunday. Now, the Rebbe begins with a a well-known quote from the Shallah The Shallah was a great uh, Kabbalist, and he wrote a lot of commentary on the Torah. He's known for the name of his book called the Shnei Luchot Habris, so an acronym for that is the Shallah and the things that he say play a big role in jewish literature and jewish teaching and he said that all holidays of the year even if it's just a rabbinically instituted holiday have a connection to the weekly torah portion so in other words if you have a holiday during this week for example a 12th of tammuz celebration anniversary of the leaving of jail of a great leader who's the leader of the Jewish people of his generation, that means it has a direct connection with something from the Parsha of the week. So from here we see that this this 12th and 13th of Tamas, when the previous Rebbe was released, has a direct connection. Now, not just is there a connection to the general idea of the two Parshas. There's a specific connection in three layers. Number one, it has to be a connection to the first of the two Parshas called Parsha Chukas. It has to have a connection to the second parsha that we read because it's a double parsha, the Parsha of Balak. And there has to be a specific connection to both Parshas together. Because when you read two Parshas together in one Shabbos, that means the fact that they're read, like they're actually read like one big Parsha. As you see, seven people get called up every Shabbos to the Torah. And this week, you're also going to have only seven broken up over the two Parshas. That means that the two Parshas become like one big, long Parsha. And of course, you got one extra reader for the Torah. And another point that it's understood that in, in, in addition to the connection of each parsha separately, there has to be, in other words, we must say the fact that if it's read through the seven readers, and meaning it's one long parsha, must be a direct connection to both of them together, especially in a year when we read them both together. Now, the name of the first parsha is called chukas. The simple translation of the word chukas is the word chukah. Chukah means a statue, a commandment of God, but the kind of commandment that we don't know the rationale to this commandment. There's different kinds of commandments. We have commandments that are very much self-understood. You wouldn't even technically need to have the Torah to tell you those laws, right? Honoring your parents, not to steal, not to kill. These are obvious laws that are completely rational there's another category of mitzvahs called edus those are mitzvahs that are testimonial like Shabbos is a reminder that God rested on this day the holidays are mostly reminders of specific events but then there's the category of this week's parsha called chukah chukah means chukah chakakti. it's like a decree that I engraved and I made it as a decree and that is the desire of Hashem whether you understand it or not it makes no difference now, this idea, in the practice of a person, in your practicing of being an observant person and practicing to try to do what Hashem wants, emphasizes itself in the idea of mesiras nefesh. Mesiras nefesh are very well-known words, which means self-sacrifice, which means you're ready to give up your life for the cause that you're doing, called, that's what it means with Nefesh. You're ready to give up your life. Now, giving up your life for something, being completely devoted with, at that level of self-sacrifice means that you're doing something that's beyond a level that you could rationalize, that you could bring it down in an intellectual way. Cause you're just doing it without any reason. Because even if you find a logical reason to do, to do, Self sacrifice that means you're doing it only because it's going to make me feel more complete. But would you be ready to go on a self sacrifice to give up your life completely that you should become a non existence? You wouldn't do it, in other words, if you're basing something on intellect, an intellectual level of devotion. I'm so it makes so much sense to me to be devoted to something that you're doing it based on your understanding, then you will only do it as long as my understanding feels right. And it's, there's a me here. But would I be willing to do that even if there's no me here anymore? So that's what it means that self-sacrifice. It's beyond any kind of level of a rationale conclusion. And this is also the reason why in the actual written Torah, we don't find anywhere that there's an instruction that a person should give up their life to do something of a mitzvah. Why? Because the whole idea of the Torah is to intellectually understand the Torah. You're supposed to learn it. You're supposed to grasp it intellectually with your chachma, with your wisdom. And self-sacrifice means that I'm going beyond my wisdom. So that's why you don't find in the written Torah anywhere where it says you should go on a self-sacrifice because that's not the idea of the written Torah. The written Torah is do, it, do things that make sense. Use your mind to it. Now, what's the connection between the freedom, uh, the 12th and 13th Thomas from the previous Rebbe in 1927? I just want to take a small pause. Let's give a small history to what happened, that he was put into jail, and then we'll go back into the Sikha. In the 1920s, communism in Russia was at its highest peak. The government was quite cruel. And they had big issues with anybody that didn't want to follow this new ideology of communism, which basically means that everything you have belongs to the government and you're basically a non-existent and the government is everything and it 's kind of in a way where you 're worshipping the government because you 're totally devoted and that 's all you do you you lose you lose your own identity and success if you made more money then you, you couldn 't keep it you had to give it away to the government. Everything was about the state or the country, and that 's basically what it was now for Jewish people, especially for Jewish people, or or really any religious people who believe in a God and worship to a God and so on and so forth and have practices and religious practices. It was very hard to do that while the government wants you to be completely devoted to the government and they feel like they're making all the rules. They decided that you have to work on Shabbos and we're not allowed to work on Shabbos and other things. So there was a, a lot of tension there and they started to kill Jews for this. And they started to send Jews to exile to Siberia and other cold places where you basically will freeze to death and through labor camps and things like that. Now, in addition to the problem with the government, we had another internal problem. There were many Jews, unfortunately, that were completely secular, completely, uh, uh, you could say, non-believers. And they believed, non-believers in God or very little. And they believed very much in the government, the communist way. So they were getting upset when Jews weren't following the communist way. So they built themselves their own organization called the Yevaseksia. And they decided that they're going to lick up to the government and you know, find favor in the government by tattatailing wherever they hear that there's a Jew practicing or many Jews practicing. So eventually, the government found out where all the synagogues are and the schools are, and they started closing everything down. They did allow, if you on your own personal level, if you wanted to pray at home, technically it wasn't against the law. You were also allowed to teach your children, technically uh, on a technical level. But they were getting, you know, closing down anything that was uh, institutionalized. Now, the previous rebbe, obviously was completely opposed to this whole behavior of them mixing into anything of our practices. And pretty much he stood as one man alone that went fully against the government. In other words, he took on the fight that he's gonna keep Judaism alive. It wasn't about being against the government. It was the focus was about keeping Judaism alive. Now, how did he do this? He started to... Orchestra that all yeshivas and all cheders, which meant underground uh, uh, of ch- uh, schools for children should continue and they should move into basements and into hiding places. And he had his Chasidim moving around the country and teaching the Torah. And we're soon going to learn about this, of how hard it was and every time a teacher got caught the the government took the teacher, arrested them and killed them, shot them or took them and sent them to Siberia or different kinds of uh, punishments like that. Every time a teacher was taken, the previous Rebbe would send a new teacher there. And this is how ruthless this became. Dozens and dozens of Hasidim and messengers, soldiers of the previous Rebbe's underground uh, network of schools were being caught and being killed. There were... At one point, when he was arrested in 1927, there was approximately 300 underground schools going on, hidden in basements, in cellars, in attics, wherever possible, going on throughout the country. So that's a tremendous network. He was also making sure that there should be women's mikvahs that should be operational so that women can go to a mikvah. And he also had... um Uh, schools for rabbis to learn how to be rabbis to be educated he also had uh, schools going on for people to be shachtim to be able to shecht and slaughter the kosher animals so that people should actually have kosher food to eat so this was all going on and eventually this group of Yevaseksia Jews eventually got the government to arrest him and it's all written up by the previous Rebbe himself wrote up a diary of his whole uh, imprisonment uh, time and eventually he was freed from there, as we're going to learn more soon as we, in, in this Sichas. Let's continue. So what's the connection of the 1213 13 of this release of jail celebration to the Parsha of Chukas? Again, Chukah means the kind of commandment that's super rational. We don't have any rational to it. By the way, what is this super rational commandment in today's Parsha? It's basically the mitzvah about the red heifer. Which means that anybody that becomes impure, especially through, let's say, contact with a corpse, you become impure. So one of the ways of becoming pure, in addition to going to the mikveh and all the processes that you would become pure through any kind of impurity, certain kinds of impurity, you needed to have a red heifer brought as an offering. The red heifer was slaughtered, it was burnt, and the ashes of it would be mixed in it with water. And they would take these ashes and they would... Sprinkle it over the person that was impure. That's how you became impure. What's the rationale to this whole thing? We don't know. We actually don't know the rationale to this. Iwashem never gave us the rationale to this. So, again, that's the theme of Parsha Chukras, which deals with this kind of level of mitzvah that's super rational. So, the connection of this to the previous Rebbe is that he was all about spreading Yiddishkeit in that country. And that's why he was arrested. And he did it in a way of chukas, meaning he did it in a way of self-sacrifice that was beyond any level of comprehension. When he stood up as one man alone against the government and a mighty government, a superpower of government. And in a country that at that time it was almost impossible for somebody to cross the borders to get out of Russia. That's how tight the noose was around the neck. Nevertheless, he didn't pay any attention to all the dangers that were involved and he did what he had to do to spread the Yiddishkeit. So that's exactly the same idea of chukka doing things that are beyond a level of trying to rationalize it. Now, the name of this week's parsha, to get more technical, is not just as the first words of the parsha: Zois Chukasatora, that it would be called the, we, we, the, the chukka. it's the super-rational commandment of the whole Torah. It's called just Chukkah, which refers to the red heifer. Which, that's what it speaks about, as we said in this week's parasha. And the word chukka itself means that it has no rationale to it. Therefore, even on this irrational commandment, King Solomon, who's known to be the wisest of all humans... He said that on all the commandments of the Torah I was able to explain a rationale to it except for the one of the red heifer. It's the only one. I just have no comprehension of it. He said it is a wisdom. It's a, it's, it, there's wisdom to it. But he said it's way far from me. I can't grasp it. And that's why it's called, in the sort of parsha it's called chukah. But when you look into the Torah it says this is the chukka of the whole Torah. Because it's specifically this mitzvah over any other mitzvah that's the most highest kind of level mitzvah that has no rationale to it. That we we don't know what it is. And that's why the parsha is called chukah, not chukah Torah Because we want to emphasize that even super rational commandments that are beyond our intellect as an example. Never doesn't say it here, but we know we have examples of kosher, eating kosher. We don't know the logic exactly why we have to eat it, so it's also, but you could try to find some kind of you know rationalizations to it for it. And nevertheless, you're supposed to do those mitzvahs also because even though I don't understand it. But even this mitzvah, specifically the red heifer is on a level that has no place. You can't grasp it. There's nothing to hold on to because it's completely irrational. It just doesn't make sense. There's nothing about it that makes sense. So it's this mitzvah of chukah that a Jew fulfills with a complete nullification and devotion to Hashem more than you could see this idea of devotion in any other commandment to the Torah. Now, the same two that you, like you have these two kinds of levels of irrational commandments, ones that are technically, eventually you could understand and some that you can't at all, like this one. We find also two levels in the way a person could go on a self-sacrifice. There are those kind of levels of devotion in a self-sacrifice that you can make a calculation, even a holy calculation, but it's a calculation. For example, you could say to yourself before you're ready to go on a self-sacrifice, you could say that let me look into the code of Jewish law and let me see, am I obligated to give up my life for this? That's called Chukas HaTorah. That's a statue, but it's of the Torah, meaning it's connected with thinking as that's what the idea of Torah is. So in other words, even though I'm ready to go on a self-sacrifice, but it's based on a source that I'm now going to do it. The higher level or another level of self-sacrifice is that you make zero calculations to it. That's called going on self-sacrifice like a chukah. Doing this mitzvah, doing this thing, just because you know that it's the right thing. How do you, how do you reach that level of commitment? That comes from the essence of a person as the essence of your soul. Because the essence of a person's soul, like it says, that the Jewish soul comes from the thoughts of Hashem. In other words, that's how far back we go. Machshav Yisrael, it comes before everything. And it's because of the essence of the bond between a Jew and Hashem that's even beyond the layers of Torah. That it's possible for a Jew to go on a self-sacrifice without any levels of intellect. And that is the kind of high level of self-sacrifice that the previous Rebbe went on. When he was spreading Yiddishkeit, he was doing it in many different ways. As I said, he was sending out Rabbanim, in other words, people to take positions to be a rabbi. Which, by the way, I want to mention briefly that my great-grandfather, my mother's mother's father, his name was Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Zuber, and he was sent by the previous rabbi in 1922, I believe he, he went. He was sent to be the rabbi in Georgia, in a place called Satchchereh. That's where he, that was his post. My grandmother, I may mean she live long and be well, she was born there in Georgia. My great-grandfather didn't know the language of Georgian. The Jews there were living a very different style than the Ashkenazic Jews in Russia. And he needed many times to write letters back to the previous Rebbe to ask him how should he conduct his life over here. They do things a little bit differently. Pesach, they eat foods based on the Sephardic traditions and he's brought up differently. And he told them that he should rule laws while he's there. He should rule the laws the way the Sephardic rule. Like the Beis Yosef from Yosef Cairo, from his Shulchan and he was the he was the rabbi, he was the shochet, he was the balcore. He gave the sermons. He actually was involved in building a mikveh there, and the government said communism reached also to Georgia, not as ruthless as in Russia, but still. And they said, how could you build a mikvah over here? And he said, no, 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 this is not a mikvah. He said, this is a spa. He convinced him that it's a spa. And it worked, the plan worked for a while, but eventually they caught on that it was actually a mikvah. And they arrested him for a couple of days. He was in jail until he came out. And then they had to change the, the whole system, how they're going to work. And many, many issues of sacrifice there. And he was there until approximately 19... 30. And By the way, in 1920, he before, uh, sorry, in 1930, when the, uh, sorry, 1927, end of 1927, the previous but got out of jail before he ended up leaving Russia, he went to visit his father's resting place in the city of Rostov in Russia, and my great-grandfather traveled there to meet him there because that was the only place they were able to meet him there kind of quietly without anybody bothering. And the previous Rebbe encouraged him that he should get a position to be a rabbi in America. He said, it's time you go to America. Too difficult for you to live here. And we have many correspondent letters with the Hasidim in America where they were trying to get him papers to move here, but America didn't have good um, Russian diplomats here at the time, and they they couldn't get their papers to America. And eventually, he ends up moving to Sweden, where he became, there was a shoulder that was a, that needed a rabbi, and the previous rebbe sent him there. It turns out he was there until 1948, and he became a, a safe haven for many Holocaust survivors, including the previous rebbe that escaped through Sweden to get to America. So he was able to be there. And my grandmother brought him the food there when she was a young child to the hotel. But the point is, is that he was he was one of those examples of rabbis that were sent to places he happened to survive, thank God. So again, back to here, the previous rebbe sends out rabbanim. He sent out shochtim to be the ones to slaughter the meats in places where it was missing these positions. Established mikvahs, made yeshivas there for older boys, for younger boys, and for young children, etc. But what was the main issue that the government actually arrested the previous rebbe? That was not so much for his spreading Yiddishkeit in a general way for adults. The main thing that the government found that was offensive to them was setting up educational institutions for children. And even though there were so many dangers involved over here, the previous Rebbe did not look at anything and he did it with an unbelievable devotion. Now, one could ask a question. and The Rebbe is asking this question, he says. You could say like this. It's true that it's very important to be involved in spreading Yiddishkeit. But why did he have to do it in such a kind of way that he's also going to teach young children, which would basically jeopardize his entire efforts of spreading Yiddishkeit? Do it just with the adults. And you could ask even a stronger question. Children technically by Jewish law, are not obligated to study Torah. We only teach them so that they should know it for when they get adulthood. So why did he find it necessary to take adults who are obligated to learn Torah and put them in positions that they'll have complete sakana danger to be able to teach a category of people like children, which was not really a technical obligation. So why did he go on such a sacrifice like this? Says the Rebbe, the answer is that the previous Rebbe was devoted without a rationale level. It was a self-sacrifice, meaning that even if it doesn't make sense, he had to do it. Why? Because he was the Nasi Yisrael. It's in today's uh, Chumash, in the Rashi. He says that a Nasi means that you're the head of all the people. And the job of the head of all the people is that you need to care about the future existence of the general Jewish people, which is dependent on the children's learning. As the Talmud puts it, if you're not going to have any kid goats, you won't be able to have any adult goats. In other words, if you're not going to have Jewish children, you're not going to have Jewish adults. Ah, you could say, and according to the laws of nature, you don't see that. You can't see that the long picture you're going to be successful and these kids are going to grow up. Is it really worth the self-sacrifice to do, to do it in such a kind of level? So he says, when would you be able to ask such a kind of question if your sacrifice or if his self sacrifice would be in a way that made that had a rationale argument to it? But because he wasn't working with how much should I go on a self sacrifice or at what level should I self sacrifice myself, it made no difference. And therefore, he completely relied that the outcome of whether how much will be successful with these. Jewish children getting their Torah education that he completely left into Hashem's hands and he brings an example here we have in the Tanakh in the book of Daniel we have the story of the famous three people Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, when the king Nebuchadnezzar wanted to have them bow down to idol and they said there's no way we're going to bow to idol and they said we're not that we're not going to do it, and he said we're going to put you into the furnace. You're going to be burnt alive. And what did they answer to the king of Netzar? They said, "Look here. If we have a merit and God will decide to save us, so we'll be saved. But if not, just so you know, King, we're not going to be bowing to that idol, regardless. God forbid." And their point was it's not because Nebuchadnezzar the king would be the one to kill them. It would be that he would be the messenger of God that they should be killed. The end was they went into the fire and the miracle happened as recorded in the book of Daniel that they weren't burnt and they came out alive. Because that was Hashem's calculation at that time for these people. By the way, it brings in a footnote that Nebuchadnezzar was also called a, a, a dog he was referred to and compared to like a dog. So he brings down that the, the uh, emphasis about a dog is to stress the idea that it doesn't have its own uh, power to make a decision. It's The power is in its master. So in you're only the pawn that Hashem will either do it this way or do it that way. It's up to God. And he says, look the way the nature of a dog is. A dog Always the nature of a dog is it always likes to run in front of the master it doesn't follow you behind you it likes to run ahead of you but look at the dog It always turns around to see to check in its master where it is how far it is it's always looking back so they called him like that because even though he thinks that he's his dog he runs ahead but he's always dependent on his master on Hashem. <laughs> And that's just a side note about the Nebuchadnezzar, he brings in the footnote. So now, back to this. So that was the Friedrich Eber's attitude. I'm going on a self-sacrifice. I. it doesn't make sense. You're right, it doesn't make sense. But we have to make sure there's a future to the people. I. how do you know these kids are going to grow up? That's up to Hashem. But we have to make sure that they have the tools and they know the Torah. Now, this thing, this idea of the previous service sacrifice is very interesting if you look At the years that he was the leader of the Jewish people. He was the leader from 1920 until 1950. Now the Rebbe says, let's analyze a little bit his 30-year leadership reign. He says, for 10 years, he was each 10 years, he was in a different place, the leader. 1920. Until 1930, even though he was let out of jail, actually, in 1927. And he eventually left the country in the end of 1927 in Isrichag. But still, he didn't find a place to live yet until 1930 when he moved to Poland. Because from there, he went to Riga in Latvia. That's where they got, he was able to get a, a quick visa there. And from there, he actually, from there, he ended up coming to America for a couple of months 1929, he came to America to strengthen Yiddishkeit in America. He went like on a almost like on a tour in America. He was in Chicago. He was in Massachusetts. He went to Washington, D.C. to meet the president. And he went to thank all the communities in America that lobbied against Russia that they shouldn't kill him and they should let him free. My grandfather, who became uh, the previous Rebbe's shliach to Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts, in 1949, he says that he met... A couple of the lawyers in Massachusetts who were telling him that earlier in 1927, when they heard that the previous Rebbe was arrested, they went to Washington to lobby every member of Congress to sign a petition to send to Russia to let him out. Yeah. Yeah. And they got the president involved uh, to get it to get him out. So this was a major, major campaign. So when the Friedrich Rebbe, when he went around traveling to thank different communities, by the way, when he came to Springfield, Massachusetts, so my grandfather tells the story that they he, he gave one of the Hasidim there that were involved in helping him. He gave him a gift. He gave him a cigar. That's a game. I guess it was popular than the cigars. So he gave him a cigar as a gift. So when my grandfather became the rabbi there, this Jew said to him, he said, listen, you know, you're the new shliach You could have the cigar. I'm going to give it to you. So he kept it from 1929 until 1949 and he gave it to him. And my grandfather said, a cigar from the previous rabbi. When am I going to smoke this thing? So he said that it says in the Talmud and it's brought down in the code of Jewish law that when Mashiach comes, there's going to be a big meal. Uh, it's going to be a big meal, and at this meal you're going to have the Leviathan and you're going to have the famous Sher Habar, the big ox. And there's a whole medrash about this that the Leviathan's going to shecht it with its uh, <laughs> with its uh, uh, um, with its fins. Anyways, so. He said at that meal, when everybody's going to be drinking wine and have this Leviathan and this special meat, I'll smoke my cigar at the Mashiach meal. So every day he would wait, when is going to be the time that I could join this meal and with the Mashiach meal? But you understand the point of of this devotion. And it turns out that when he went back, because most Jews were living at that side of the world then, and eventually he settled and moved into Poland because that's where... There were, you know, thousands of Jews living or hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Poland. So he felt that he could their best spread Hasidus in a place like that. So now let's understand this. The first 10 years, what was the main ambition that he was devoted into in Russia? It was all devoted in a way of keeping Judaism alive and it was dependent literally on your life. It was Mama sakana Nefashis. So it was literally a level. He could have been killed any date. The second 10 years when he was in Poland, he was in a country that there were many, many brother, Jewish brethren there. And it was a perfect place to spread Hasidus. In an unbelievable broad way. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews. But there were still limitations. And the reason for that was, and he quotes here the verse, he borrows the verse from, in Genesis, in the story of Joseph and his brothers, the verse says, achiv. his brothers were jealous of him, of Joseph. And the the verse says that the after Joseph told the brothers his dreams, they were jealous of him. And their father, guarded his words. In other words, he kind of protected him. So Rebbe says that in our case, who's the Yosef? The previous Rebbe's name was Yosef. And in Poland, it was a situation, there were many religious Jews, I believe that's what he's referring to, who there was a certain kind of jealousy towards him. But Va'aviv, the father in heaven, protected it. And Hashem made, that even over there, he should be able to be successful In a way of self-sacrifice. And the things that he did. To be able to spread Yiddishkeit. Even that country. Was an unbelievable determination. At the level of self-sacrifice. Beyond a level that would make any rationale. Sense to this. So that was the second 10 years. from 1930 to 1940. 1940. End of 39. And as the war started. He gets out in a miraculous way. And he moves to what we call the Kadr Hatachted. Loosely translated, it means the lower hemisphere. But what it refers to, to the parts of the world, that's where all the Americas are. South America, Central America, North America, right? Canada, United States, everything. All that parts of the world. So he moves now over the sea to this part of the world. And what was the issue with bringing Yiddishkeit to this side of the world? Because in America, it was, it was there was a feeling of an attitude that America is different. You move to America, this is not the place where we're going to be religious. That's not the place where we're going to practice Yiddishkeit and so on and so forth. Over here, God forbid, you could think that God that you don't have to do this here. Now to stand up against this attitude is already a whole nother level and you need to be completely devoted at a a self-sacrifice for that. To be able to be so devoted that you're going to show that America is no different and we're going to bring Yiddishkeit here too. As As a side note, my grandfather once told me, you have to remember, my grandfather came to 770 when he was 14 years old in 1941. He arrived before the Rebbe came between the previous Rebbe and his son-in-law, the Rebbe. That's my grandfather came just before the Rebbe arrived. He was there at the 770's front door when the Rebbe came with the Rebbetson to his first time to 770 and came out of the burning fires of Europe. So my grandfather says that he heard that on the boat when the previous Rebbe was coming to America, he asked for a map, and they brought him a map, and he opened it up, and you were able to see... New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, all the states hovering around. And he asked for a pencil and he circled each place where he's going to set up a yeshiva there, a Jewish day school. And when he got off the boat, the first day when he arrived, he started a yeshiva. And eventually, that's the way it started. My grandfather was only 16 years old. He barely knew how to learn. The previous server called him into his office and said that we need you out in the fields. And I need you to go open up a Jewish day school. Imagine that. Call over a 16-year-old kid today. Say, you're done with your studies. You're going to open up. Here's the keys to a city and go open up a Jewish day school. He started the Jewish day school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Two years later, he was called in to open a Jewish day school in Buffalo, New York. First in Bridgeport, Connecticut for a short while and then to Pittsburgh and Buffalo and then eventually to move to Boston and get married and then he moved to Mass Springfield. But I'm just showing you this is only one one case that I'm sure telling you firsthand. But there was hundreds of such cases. Now, all these three periods of 10 years. Each one of them, he had the same strength of devotion to keep Yiddish Kadd alive. alive. Now, obviously, you can't compare the self-sacrifice of the later two 10 years than to the first one. Because the first one was literally at life or death. And not just that. When The Rebbe, when the previous Rebbe put his life in danger, he also put in life those people that he was sending out to be teachers in Russia. Now, imagine this. By the previous Rebbe, when he went on the self-sacrifice, when one teacher was taken away, he replaced him with another teacher, which went into the same danger of the front lines. And to do that, to send a student on self-sacrifice, is a greater pain that it takes to go on your sacrifice yourself. And actually, I want to rec- play for you now, a, a just for a quick moment, a recording where you could hear the Rebbe saying these words, and you can hear him choking, even if a Yiddish is not perfect, but you can hear it as he says these words in Yiddish about sending a student is harder than to send yourself into self-sacrifice. Listen to this. <laughs> Einige von den Molen nach Duho, die Kananen, die Scholz, die Asal, die echt nicht. Beide standen dem Nisoyen, wurden auf morgen weiter noch mehr sehr neffisch geworden und es geklüben, als wir den Nieden auf dem schicken, er soll mit Male Mokim sein von dem Schnee, was wir dem gehabt So you see that even to say those words was, is so emotional, That let alone to do it, to send somebody to like that to the front line. And more than that, there were those that obviously never came back. And this was all in the first 10 years. On the other hand, in the second 10 years, 1930 to 1940, was, was also super difficult because to deal with answering your own brothers, in other words, the people that are also observant and practicing of Torah, that they should tell you things where they try to get you to stop doing what you're doing. Why are you doing it like this? Why don't you do it like that? And nevertheless, you're going to continue. In a certain way, it requires even a deeper self-sacrifice to continue doing what you're doing. And then going to the third level in America actually in a way is even a deeper level of self-sacrifice. Why? Because in America, everybody's laughing at you. Here you're going to do this. Are you kidding? So the skeptics in America was even another level that you had to overcome it and you know, just continue going and be strong. And nevertheless, you find... That the Rebbe was not content the way people were telling him. Just be comfortable that you have your own synagogue, you have your own shul, you have your own four cubits. You know, you 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 you, you survived yourself. Why do you have to go uh, take over the whole world that everybody should recognize Hashem and do Torah and, and he did it all in the same level of devotion in all three different kinds of challenges. Now, normally in the laws of nature, it's not possible for a person to be so devoted on all different kinds of fronts. Because even when whatever you're devoted in, you have a certain inkling to that, you know, style of focus that that here, but here he had to deal with all different fronts. How were you able to do it? Ah, because it was beyond a level of rationale, it was a complete devotion of his essence. To have this kind of level of self-sacrifice. Now, this is all the connection to the parsha of Chukas. Now, what's the connection to the parsha of Balak? Who was Balak? Balak was a gentile king. He was the king of a country called Moab. He was Melech mayav Now, it says in this week's parsha, and the Chazal, the sages, tell it to us in many places that Balak was the greatest anti-Semite, the biggest anti-Semite that existed, more than all other anti-Semites. Why do we say that about him? Because he wanted to harm Jews, even though there was zero rationale, there was no base at all for any reason for him to want to attack the Jews. The Jews had zero interest in his land. As a matter of fact, we had a commandment from God. Moshe told us, that God told us, do not distress the people from Moab. Hashem said, do not provoke the Moabin people into war. So we had no interest in any level. And not just we had no interest, we were told not to go there even. What was his problem with the Jews? He just couldn't stand the existence of the Jews. And more than that, even after he saw that he himself will not be able to take down the Jews, what did he do? He went through great levels of exertion, as it's in today's parsha. To bring down a second person to help him to bring down the Jews. He went to hire the prophet, the Gentile prophet called Bilam, To be able to curse and harm the Jews. Now, what you just see, heard now in Pasha Balak is exactly what happened by the arrest of the previous Rebbe. He was busy spreading the Torah. And as the previous Nebuchadnezzar writes, that as a matter of fact, he says what we were doing was actually permitted according to the law of the country. Because the law of the country, as we mentioned before, you were allowed to do Yiddishkeit to yourself. you were allowed to teach it in small groups. In other words, the basis of what he was doing was a permitted thing. But it was concussion from all these other people and unfortunately Jews that they, made up all these claims that he was a traitor of activities against the government so it was why would these people doing this because for no good reason except for the fact that they hated the fact of somebody being a religious observant Jew following the laws of Moshe and Israel and that's how they made up these things that that's against the, the country There was no reason. What bothered them that this person was teaching Torah and doing Torah mitzvahs? Nothing other than the comparison to like a bullock for no good reason just had this hatred in him. They couldn't tolerate a a, a religious Jew and they went in all these great lengths to bring him down. Now, what was the end? Let's go back first to the parsha. The end of the story of the of Balak and the with his prophet Bilam. Not just was Balak not able to fulfill his plan, which was utterly as Amazai said to Bilam, "Help me to curse this people." On the contrary, him hiring Bilam ended up that Bilam couldn't say curses, and he ends up giving blessings. Turns out to be the biggest blessings that we have. And that transformed, it actually transformed every curse into a blessing. Every potential curse that they wanted to do turned into be a blessing. So too, it was by the previous rebbe. The same people that were involved in arresting him, they themselves had to be the ones to help that he should be free. Imagine that they were the same people that had to be involved to get him to be, to free him. So that's the connection to Parsha Balak, arch enemy of Israel for no reason. He was arrested in 1927 by the arch enemies of Yiddishkeit, and just like Balak and Bilam ends up getting the giving the biggest blessings, so too the people themselves that tried to hurt him in the previous Shabbat ends up being the ones that are the helpers. And by the way famously the Rebbe brings down a many other sikhas that the previous Rebbe writes that it's not just me as an individual that was released from prison. It was, a, it was a sign of triumph to Yiddishkeit for everywhere in the world. Now we have to go to one more point and that is, what is the connection to the parsha of Chukas and Balak when they are read together in one Shabbos? The lesson is the following. When Balak tried to find and he eventually tried to convince Balaam, he tried to find some rationale why he's doing this. So he said, he said like this, he said, now this, these people, this assembly of Jews, this nation will chew up everything around us. Just like the ox chew up the grass of the fields. He concocted this whole idea that we're going to come we're going to eat up all his grain and he won't have anything to eat and that the entire country of Maev should be worried about this so he brought this this fright on all the Moab people about, against the Jews so his hatred on the Jews was in a way of Chukas and bullock mixed together It was in a way that had no rationale to it. So it was like chukas. But more than that, not just that it had no reason to it, it's actually the opposite of what normal intellect would tell you to try to harm these kind of people. Because it was clear that you're not going to be able to fulfill your mission to hurt them. And like we find in the story of Balak and Bilaam, that Bilaam, who knew very well That he will not be able to fulfill the mission to curse the Jews. Because being a prophet, he heard from Hashem. Hashem said, do not curse these people. You cannot curse these people because they are blessed people. So for sure he wouldn't be able to fulfill his mission to curse out. And like he told Balak, I cannot forsake the words of God to curse them. And whatever Hashem is going to put into my mouth, that's what I'm going to say. Nevertheless, because of his hatred to Jews, Bilam couldn't contain himself, and he tried very hard to fulfill Balak's wish to curse the Jews. Remember, imagine this: Bilam knew he can't. Hashem told him you won't be able to curse them, but he he hated the Jews so much. It actually says that Bilam, in a way, was even worse than Balak. We know the end of the story in the Chumash. We don't have to go there now. But the short of it is that Bilam came up with a plan. Since I can't curse them, why don't you send out your daughters to entice the Jewish men to sin with them? And God hates promiscuity. So that will get God against him. Right? That was his, his, his brainstorm idea. But the point is that it was in such a kind of way that he wanted to even skip Balak and skip the words the Hashem said, I'm going to try my best to find a way how to get them. So too you have it in the practice of every Jew. Very interesting here now, how the Rebbe quotes something from the previous Rebbe's a discourse, a mimer. Previous Rebbe says in his well-known famous Hasidic discourse that he gave out right before he passed away to be published on, the, on a certain date, and that was the date he passed away. In that discourse, he speaks there about a concept called or stuyot, deklipa. There's two kinds of falliness this falliness in holy things and this falliness of the opposite of holy things. Meaning, when you say there's a falliness of the opposite of holy, what you're saying is that it's not just higher than intellect, it's lower than intellect. And he says that the same thing, this idea of falliness is by people in a way that it's an it becomes an attitude that we have we have like this kind of attitude that's lower than intellect it doesn't make sense like in a negative way almost because it's not using your intellect because you're going lower than intellect and that is a person says this is the way the world works so that's the way i do things i do things because that's the way things are it almost becomes like a statue, like a huck, that this is the way it is and I'm not changing it. For example, everybody has a time when I eat and a time when I sleep and that's not changeable. I eat every day, three times a day. I can't skip it. If I skip it, I must make it up, right? If I go to sleep late, I got to sleep in. It, it, we come this whole idea when it comes to this is the way the world is. That's the nature. I can't change it. At the same time, what happens to the other things? There are other things that are also important that it should be in a fixed schedule. For example, having a set time of when you learn Torah and when you daven. Unfortunately, chas v'shalom, but it, it could be that by a person that your Torah schedule or your daven doesn't have a fixed time. And sometimes you say, ah, I'll push it off to later. And sometimes you never even get to make it up. So this attitude of this is the way, these are the things that are important to me, and what's with the other things? That's called falliness, lower than the level of intellect because we could fall so low. But what is chukas? Chukas teaches us that we have to have falliness in holiness higher than intellect. That means that I have to transform the attitude of not using my intellect to be using it in a hot, to not use my intellect in a holy way. In other words, not using your intellect in a negative way means, oh, these are my food and my sleep. That's essential. I'll never miss these things. But learning, that's not as important. So that's called not using my intellect. I'm not rationalizing. I'm not making sense of what I'm saying. I'm just saying I'm not going to do it. I'll push it off. It's not as important. Say to yourself, it's not as important, in other words, that I'm now going to start to do it even more often than just my fixed time. So you're going higher than intellect instead of lower than intellect. Now this is the way Chukas and Balak combine these two ideas, higher than intellect and also in a way that makes no rational sense, Balak. And this is what happened to those that were against the previous Rebbe. As it's known from the previous Rebbe's diary that there was a man named and over here in the Sicha, for some reason, the Rebbe only puts the man's initial name. The Rebbe was so careful when he quoted a negative thing about a person, especially a Jew. But in the previous Rebbe's private diary, it says his full name. The Jew that arrested him, there were two Jews that arrested the previous Rebbe. Their names were Lulav and Nachmanson. Now, Lulav was one of the two Jews, and he says here, Lamed dot. It doesn't say his full name here. So, But Lulav... As it's known, that he was one of the two Jews that arrested the previous Rebbe. And by the arresting, he wanted to carry the previous Rebbe's bags. And why? What, What was his rationale? Why should he hold, he's arresting the man and he wants to hold the person who he's arresting, he wants to carry his bags for him. So he said to the previous Rebbe, he said, while he's arresting him, he said, chassidim, stay chassidim. My grandfather carried your grandfather's bags, so I want to have the honor to carry your bags. Imagine this kind of language. And later on, there was a time in the questioning when they were coming to give the previous Rebbe good news when he was in jail. And they told the previous Rebbe, to give you this news, you have to stand. And the previous Rebbe says in his diary, by the way, that when he went into this imprisonment, he made up his mind that I am not going to follow any instructions of these people here. That's the only way they'll understand. As soon as they, they see that I'm listening to them, they're going to think that they want everything and that'll be my end. So he didn't listen to them. When they told him to stand up, he said, I'm staying sitting. They said, you have to stand to get this news. He said, I'm staying sitting. And they said to him, if you don't stand up, we're going to hit you. And he said, no. And they took uh, the back of the, the revolver and they hit him in the jaw, which caused him a lot of pain for a very long time. But in that discussion, when they were trying to get him to stand, said to him. He said, Rebbe, why don't you stand up? So you see again, He calls him Rebbe. He recognizes him that he's the Rebbe. We had a similar story to this by the previous Rebbe. By the way, he previously he was the sixth Rebbe from Chabad. The second Rebbe the Mittel Rebbe was also once put into jail for for also for a whole story with the Yiddishkeit in Russia or an earlier different different uh, story. But over there also, the Mittler Rebbe said in the courts he said that this man who's accusing me for this, he's calling me Rebbe. He slipped in his mouth. So, well, if he calls me a Rebbe, then are you taking his word? Or are you taking my word? In other words, deep inside, he recognized the truth. Now, look what happened in the story in 1927. When Lulov expressed himself like this to the, to the Rebbe, to the previous Rebbe, he recognized the truth of who he is. Now when he told the Rebbe that I want you to carry my bags, the previous Rebbe told him, I will not let you carry my bags. I will not let you have that opportunity. And if you don't repent very quickly, the end will be severe for you. And not looking at all of this, with the whole warnings of the previous Rebbe, this man had terrible sufferings at the end. Because the government... Paid him back at the end. Once they released their previous Rebbe. They realized that all this man's accusations were false. So the government took care of what they had to do to him. And that's how you see. A Balak and Bilam. Their downfall ended up happening. Instead of everything they tried to do to get us. What happened? It all turned around. And through this. That by their, by, by their previous Rebbe. That he had this devotion of Chukas. A self-sacrifice beyond a letter of any of, of a level of intellectual capacity. That broke all the oppositions against him. Like we're going to say in the Haftorah tomorrow. that uh, The Shabbos. That all the enemies will disappear. Till the point... As we spoke, that they themselves were the ones that released him from prison, and it became a new holiday by the Jews, as we have unfortunately, whenever they're going to do these pr- troubles, we end up all we get out of it is another Yom Tif, and it will turn over the entire month of Tammuz into a time of gladness and simcha and holidays. And may this be Bekar Mamash. And this is from the Febrangians of Shabbos Chukas Balak and the Youth based Thomas Febrengan of 1975 and later at a Febrengan of Yud Shvat in 19... From earlier Febrengan, sorry, in a Yud a Tent of Shvat, on the Yards of the previous service, the Rebbe said that Febrengan in 1974.